Isn't that good? Every time I see it, I see something new in it. Um, are we ready? Okay. Can I uh, ask you to pray for us, Lisa, or somebody? Lisa, would you pray for us? Yes. I'm saving words and voice. Our Father and our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are gathered here this morning to worship you. You are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to be known. And we love you. We want to know you more so that we can love you more. So that we can be a, a body in our community that is known for being different. For loving you and for being transformed by you community that reaches out to neighbors nearby and neighbors far away. We want to be like that. Lord, thank you for Kay, for her coming amidst her busy schedule. We pray that you would use her mightily this morning with us and again this evening and again tomorrow morning. Would you just help her to rest in you, give her your shalom and peace and just let your spirit, let her let your spirit just take over and teach. Lord, would you bring your word alive to us through her. Just open our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have us to learn today. We pray as we Amen. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, Kay, where are you? Is Kay in here? Oh, did you want to, were you going to make an announcement? At the end? Okay. Um, so I might scurry out at the end while you make that announcement. Is that okay? So I'm going to go ahead and say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> um, because we are kicking off the PCPC, uh-oh, PCPC studies today. Y'all can see that I'm in good shape for it too, right, this day. And so I've got to go do that. Um, I get to go do that as soon as I'm done here. So I am going to race out as soon as we are done here. Um, is this for me? Is this any, anything I need right here? No? Okay. Okay, how many of you I have not met? How many of you have I not met? Have not been to anything? Okay, let's do it the other way. How many of you have I have taught you before at this church? Okay, well, this is going to be very repetitive for some of you, but, I w- but it was a request this morning. So I'm going to move this up here. <laughs> takes me a while to get settled. And um, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 1? Watch me knock that over. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to, um, I think 11.30 is your ending time. Is that right? So we are going to, hmm? Oh. I lied to you. I said I had pockets, and I don't. Well, I'm just going to try real hard to not knock this over. Um, Okay, so what we're going to do is spend about probably, I don't know, Tim Keller just went through the whole Bible in three minutes. So we're going to to try to do it in about 20. Okay, so that's what this chart is up here. We're going to go through the whole Bible. So look at Matthew chapter 1 real quickly, and this was in your introductory material. For your, um, for your new study. 
It's the book, Matthew says, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so this king that you're going to study this year and this story of David in the, in the first and second Samuel books, which is really Jesus' story, it's the gospel story, this king is the way Matthew has chosen to introduce Jesus Christ to the Jewish Christians, to his, to his readers, to his, to his audience. This, the genealogy, he even goes so far as to say the Genesis. This, this is the book of the Genesis, the new beginning, the new age that has begun with this man, this Jewish man. And he wants them to know right off the bat that he is one of them. He is a Jew. He is from their nation. He is their national heritage. And that he is a man with a story. And so that's why Matthew won't let you go to the birth narratives, to the Christmas story, until he has dragged you through 17 verses of the genealogy because in this he tells the story of Jesus Christ. And it's it's very typical of genealogies in, in the uh, Bible in that it's way too clean. There are a lot of things left out. And so what Matthew has decided to do, what he's chosen to do, is use 7, 7, and 7 because those are complete numbers in Scripture. And so he wants to show you that this is the complete story. So he's telling you the whole story. Now, Matthew only goes back to Abraham because he is stressing the Jewishness of Jesus in his gospel. He wants these Jewish listeners to know that this, that this, was a, that this is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that they've been waiting for. Luke goes all the way back to Adam in his because he's writing to whom? Gentiles. And so he wants to get them all the way back to the beginning of time and, and let them see the, the, hum, the humanity, the human race in its, in its creation. So each of these gospel writers has an agenda. Okay? They have something that they want to say to us that is an agenda that only they have. It's, it's always been kind of an irony to me that I just really find funny that critical scholarship, when you, when you read critical scholarship, and, and I don't recommend that you read critical scholarship unless you're very, very you know, sure in, in what you believe about every little detail of the Bible, but they always want to say that the Gospels are unreliable because each of, they're so different, and each of those four writers had an agenda. Well, of course they did. Why would they have written it if they didn't have an agenda? Each of those four writers had something to tell you about Jesus, not just from their perspective. It wasn't just a perspective or an opinion. It was an emphasis about Jesus Christ that they want their readers and their audience to know. And so Matthew wants his readers to know that this is the king. This is the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ and Messiah, same word, that this is the anointed one whom they have been waiting for, the son of David, David's greater son, that they have been promised and waiting for. And so that's why he uses that. And so Matthew does have an agenda. And so we're going to start there because he tells them first the whole story. Y'all, these people, these Jewish Christians, would have been familiar with every name in this genealogy. They knew this, this was not Waters' world, where he goes out and says, you know, who's this a picture of? And it's Nancy Pelosi, and nobody knows her. You know, it's, this is, these people knew their people. They, they knew, okay? So you almost not watch Waters' world. <laughs> that reference just went right over your heads. Okay, <laughs> so sorry. But anyway, that's, so that's who he's talking to, and he wants them to see the story in here. And I love this. I read, um, recently I read this scholar, don't do this today because you're, because you're studying the Old Testament, and I am really here to get you excited about the Old Testament, and here I am just talking about the New. But there is, in this genealogy, this one scholar um, who is uh, just incredibly interesting, 
said it's like an N, and so the first third of the genealogy is an upward rise from Abraham up to David and Solomon. And so you see that, that genealogy go from Abraham to David and Solomon, and then Matthew breaks it on the, second, on the second section, and it's this downward spiral from Solomon down to the exile. And so you see that in the genealogy. If you read it carefully, I'm just trying to get you really interested in genealogies too because they're <laughs> awesome because they typically will tell these two in the Gospels, Luke and Matthew, will tell the whole story of Scripture. And then it takes from the exile, then it takes another upward thrust. It goes all the way. Is that me? Am I doing that? And goes all the way to the final word of the genealogy, which is what? And Christ, and of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I'm probably hitting on the Bible. Okay. Okay. I'll get, I'll get the hang of it in a minute. So the reason I'm telling you so much about Matthew and about this genealogy is because we are going to look, as I said, at all of Scripture. He is telling these people... I want you to see what I see. I want you to know who has come. And so we're going to look at all of Scripture because what he's telling them is this is a man with a story and you have to understand that the Old Testament is Jesus' story before you can possibly understand him. And so we're going to to delve into it. Um, The gospel story. Matthew, what Matthew wants his readers to know is that Jesus' story is the gospel story. We are going to start with, I'm sorry, this is going to be a little bit different from what I had planned, so I'm winging it a little bit on this. All right, so first of all, those of you that I haven't talked to before, the Bible. The Bible is a story. It is a narrative from start to finish, from Genesis, from Eden on. It is a narrative from creation to revelation. It's one story that God progressively reveals himself in, reveals his story of redemption. And so we're going to talk about each of those segments or frames in the movie, if you will, in the story and how he progressively gives you these series of indications of how it's going to turn out. So you start up here. With Eden, and you see this coherence of the story and the faithfulness of God and the gospel story that begins right away. What we've we've done this before. What does the gospel mean? Does anybody remember? It means good news, and it was we think of it in New Testament terms, but it was actually from the Old Testament. It was used in Nahum. It was used in Isaiah. It was used when someone came proclaiming two things: either the birth of a king or a victory in battle. And so it was known as the gospel carrier, the messenger who came proclaiming the good news. What does Isaiah say? Blessed are the feet of those who proclaim good news, who publish what? Peace. Okay, so you right away, you have this understanding in the Old Testament that 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 is what good news is. And so right away from the beginning of Scripture, you get good news published by the beautiful feet of God as he comes into the garden, walking into the garden. And we'll talk about that in a minute. One thing that I think helped us understand this when we had a meeting last spring about stories is that we live in a storied universe, and that's why God has given us. God knows we love stories. He knows that we relate to stories, that we live in in the stories. I was an English teacher for years. I love teaching literature, hate teaching grammar to kids, love stories because kids can get into stories because they have a cinder Every story, a sender, an agent. Remember, we talked about this last spring, those of you that were here. And so the ones that last, the ones that resonate with us are gospel stories. They're redemptive stories. They have a sender and an agent, usually an impediment. Even in your romantic comedies, there's an impediment that comes along. So you've got this sender, this person that has sent somebody out for to be great blessing to others. Okay, that's the story. Downton Abbey, how many fans? Okay, 
So you had, so you had, you had this agent who sent someone who was supposed to be great blessing to Mary and everyone else in the story. Who was it? It was Matthew, peeps. Come on, it was Matthew. And then he wanted out of his contract. And so they killed him off in the show. If y'all have not DVR'd it yet, I'm really sorry for that (laughs) spoiler alert. But he was supposed to be, okay, so you had this agent, Matthew, who was to be great blessing to everyone, and he gets killed because of an impediment. All right, so then the story you think is going to come to a halt, and it's not going to turn out well. The best example of this is Little Red Riding Hood. We teach this story to children. I have no idea why. It is about an elderly woman who gets eaten by a wolf. It's not a good, it's never been a good story. A wolf eats a little lady and, and a little girl. But here's, but here's the story that you see all through Scripture. The sender, Mrs. Hood. Red's mother sends her to be a blessing to her grandmother because her grandmother is sick. And so she sends her out and she says, do not pick flowers along the way. Do not go off the path from here to grandmother's house. And so she has these instructions and then the impediment comes. Who's the impediment? The wolf. Okay. And what does he tell her? Okay, get off the path, girl. Your mom is just trying to keep you down. Get off and get have some fun. And so she does. And what happens? The wolf, while she's out picking flowers, goes to grandmother's house, eats grandmother, and then Red comes and he eats Red. So it's looking bad. It's it's looking, you know, like what are we going to do about this? And so who comes along? Of course, a rescuer. So you had a sender who sends people out, this little girl, for, to be great blessing to her grandmother. And then something comes along, an impediment that, that hinders that, that stops that. And so the rescuer, the hero, has to come. That's the gospel. That's it. That's the gospel in Little Red Riding Hood language. And all stories that we love are like that. And so that's why we, that's why we see Scripture so differently when we see it in a storied nature, we live in a storied universe. It changes everything when you start seeing the progression of the story. And you don't take your Bible verses and denarratize them and just use them as little moral tidbits to cross-stitch and hang on the wall. Or even little devotional tidbits to say, you know, what was your devotional about this morning? What was about this verse? Well, tell me the story. Tell me how that fits into the story. And you know why? Because each one of us are in the story. You are here right now this morning because you have been called by God into the story. And it is for a purpose. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But you are here for a purpose. God did not tell you, here's your script. Go into your holy huddle and keep your children safe until Christ comes back. He said, here is your script. Please inhabit the role I am giving you. Go out. Take your place in the story and live in the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit and the resources that you have been given for the story to live your life out. So what we're going to talk about today is kind of what Tim was mentioning on the video, how each of these mediators, each of these people in the story did that, how they inhabited their role, how they came into the story. And, um, and that's what, and that's basically probably all we're going to have time to talk about. So I'm going to, I'm going to go very, very quickly through it. Creation. Eden, how much text is devoted to the creation story? To the framework of creation, two chapters. Okay, we always say this, I always ask this question, but wouldn't you have liked to have more than that? Wouldn't you have liked to know before mankind fell, before sin entered the world, what was going on in that garden? How amazing that story. This is what we do know. You can let your imagination run wild in those, in those two chapters. 
as long as you stay within biblical parameters with what, because this is what we know. There were these two people that God created in his image to be in relationship with him. And what were they supposed to do? Did he say, now stay here in this garden and don't wear yourselves out? No, they were supposed to, God said, go out to this little place I like to call earth and fill it up and have dominion over it. And scholars like to call that the cultural mandate. Why do you think that is? Because he was telling them to go out and make culture. See, we think culture is bad. We think when we hear the word culture, we immediately think, oh, that's bad. The culture is just going to hell in a handbasket. God mandated culture. Culture is what man makes. God made rivers and trees. Man makes bridges and swings that go in the trees and those kinds of things. And so that is a creation mandate. And God said, go out and do it. And that's what they were to do. They were to live forever in this state, in Eden, in this, in this state of shalom. Lisa prayed that today. What do you think of, what is, what is the meaning of shalom? What do we usually think of when we say it? Peace. Okay, it's way too anemic of a, a definition of the word. I, I agree that's what we usually think of. What it means is flourishing, well-being, wholeness, um, just complete... Everything is in a right, rich state of affairs. You are at one in your relationships with each other, with God, with with everything else, and, and delighting in Him and He delighting in you. That's the state that they lived in. It is the way things ought to be. It is the way things were intended to be. And so when we talk about shalom and Christ returning, and there will be complete and universal shalom, that's what we mean. We mean a return to the state of being in the presence of God and having that complete existence of him, of walking with him and being in relationship with him. Y'all, the person you love most in this world, the person you cherish, the relationship you cherish more than any other is you waiting in the shallow relationship waters compared to what that relationship was like. Those two people with that God. And they blew it. That God who did not say, I'm going to put you in a test period and have you and see if you do well enough here. See, we, we kind of think that most of the time. They were in this test period, and God said, do good things, don't do bad things, and we're all going to be fine here. That's not what it was. They had everything. God didn't say, do good things, and you're going to earn living forever. He gave them everything, and they demerited what he had given them. So grace, we like to say, is unmerited favor. It is demerited relationship. God, it was not incumbent on him to create them. He gave them everything. They had no restrictions except not to eat that one tree. And they fell in that garden. So the story continues. By the way, (coughs) we're on a trajectory here. The garden, if Adam and Eve had done what they were supposed to do, which is go out and fill the earth and make culture, the garden would have eventually become too small. We are on a trajectory. We're not going back to the garden. Where are we going? Mm-hmm. We're going to a city. And it's, it's a beautiful story. You have to, you have to get that. Because, because, again, when we think culture is, is bad, we're forgetting that God, God told us to do that. And we don't ever get to stop doing something that God has told us to do unless God says stop doing it. And so you have this new heavens and new earth in the book of Revelation in the last two chapters with this city coming down out of heaven and where the nations are bringing things into the city. And there will be this incredible shalom and this incredible existence for us in the presence of God when he has gathered all of his people in. And when he has rid this world, because that will have to precede that happening, of all evil, 
and all sin. That's, that's the story. That's the end of the story that we have got to keep in mind in every part of our lives, in everything you're dealing with today, in every problem and trauma in your children's lives. So the fall happens. We don't know how long. We know it's like seven verses in Scripture. We don't know how long in actual time it takes to get to the articulation of redemption. We have talked about this before in this class, but it is in Genesis 3, of course, and we always jump right to 315. I won't make you turn to it right now, but it actually occurs before 315, before God makes that promise of sending the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Before he does that, he comes walking in the garden looking for them. And he says, Adam, where are you? Now, you know, as well as I do, and I'm not trying to be funny here, that it was not that Adam was such a good hider that God could not find him. It was not that God didn't know what they had done. But he comes looking for him because he is already moving toward his people in grace. And now the grace is no longer the graciousness of just creating them and being in a relationship with them because that's what grace is, was for them in the garden. Now there is a redemptive element that has been added to the grace in the fall. And so now you see God moving toward them. I tell this practically every single time I talk, so I have to tell it again. It's just something I love. It takes a second. But my, one of my favorite professors from Coven is Dr. David Calhoun. Y'all, you may remember him, Kay, but he's Southern. He likes Waffle House. He likes to eat at Waffle House. And he tells this story of the day he was there, and there was a Yankee, someone from New York, was in Waffle House. And the waiter brought his breakfast to him, and the man pointed to the grits and said, what is that? He had never seen grits. And the waiter said, well, it's grits. And the man said, well, I didn't order grits. And the waiter said, mister, you don't order grits. Grits just comes. (laughs) That's That's what happens with God moving toward us in grace. We would be paupers if we only got it when we ordered it or when we asked for it. He moves toward them in grace, and he loves them in grace, and he announces the good news. He publishes peace. I will send a rescuer for the impediment that has happened here. And so the whole rest of the story from the fall in Genesis 3 on, starting right there, And Eden, the whole rest of the story till we get to the new creation is the story of God doing that. It is the story of, as somebody said this morning in leaders meeting, it is God saying, I've got this. I've got this covered. I'm going to sort this out. And so that Old Testament story is the story of how he does that up until the time Christ comes in the book of Matthew. So we we really are going going to try to race through every bit of the unfolding. And that story. But I want you to, I just want you to think for just a minute differently about grace. We were, we sit here today and we were never intended to think of ourselves in terms of deserving anything. That word was not, was not intended to be in our, in our vocabulary. We were never intended to think of, think of that we deserve something that we don't have. We were never meant for God to have to move toward us in forgiveness. We were, that was not his intention. And so when you think of the end of the story, always and everywhere, when you think today of what's going on in the world as we sit here approaching um, the 11th of September once again and, and so many people approaching it in fear of, of what's going to happen and what's going on, when you think of those things, you, you have to remember that we're headed somewhere. We're going, we are going to that place where God is unfolding this story and taking us to that place where there is that, that shalom. And so we're here, and, we, and the next time you see him, so then he just, in your Bible, in your Old Testament, as you go through it, 
you see him then giving you a series of events and people, indications of how this is going to to work out. Y'all, there is no way to overstate the importance of these people in the Old Testament part of the story that Tim that Tim went through for you when he showed when he showed them to you. But what was he emphasizing in that video? That they were the forerunners, they were the patterns, they were the types, and they were the people who showed us and pointed us toward Christ. But please don't ever think that that's all they were, that they were just shadows and just types. They played an important role in the story. They had a, a part to play. They weren't, as we always say, they weren't the spear holders. They weren't the tree in the school play. They had a role to inhabit and a script to inhabit. And you're going to see that in David's life this year as you study him. He took the stage when Samuel went to Jesse's house, and he took on that mantle. He stepped into that role, and it is an incredible role. Jesus identifies himself more with David than any other person. David is the only David, the only David in Scripture. It's, it's, it's the last name on Jesus' lips at the end of Revelation. It's the last name he ever utters. This is an important, important person in Scripture, but he is important, as Tim said, because he took his role and he played his role. But as we'll talk about in a minute, he knew his role and he knew he was not the Savior. And he knew that his sins demanded that he have a Savior of his own. And you will see that in his life over and over again. It's a, it's a precious truth. I think the thing I love the most about David is that he lived in spiritual reality. He truly understood how fallen he was, what a sinner he was. And he truly understood that at the same time he was God's child. And that God would not forsake him nor leave him. So much so that on his deathbed, he can say, God, after all I've done and all the sorrow and all the pain that I have caused my family and everything that has happened to me in my life, you have been faithful. My house still stands because of you, God. And I know that your promises are true, that you've made me, and I know that you will fulfill them and see them through to the end. That's David's deathbed prayer. So that's who you're studying. You are not studying some hero. You are studying someone who stumbles and falls constantly. And so that's, we'll get to him a little bit more in a minute. But I want you to see these covenant mediators for who they are. They are people who came onto the stage, took their place on the stage. I always use this illustration, but it's really a good one from C.S. Lewis. He, um, he had this group of very intimate friends. They were called the Inklings. That you know the most famous of them is J.R.R. Tolkien, but they all met together regularly. They studied together. They discussed philosophical things. They were wonderful friends. And one of the men, Charles Williams, died relatively young. And Williams and, and Lewis wrote this about Charles Williams' death. He said, In each one of my friends, there is something that only about that person that only the other friends in the circle can bring out. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again get to see Ronald's reaction to Charles's jokes. Now that Charles is dead, I actually have so much less of Ronald. That's what these people are, each of these covenant mediators. Mediators because once man fell into sin, you will not be able to approach God again without a mediator. And so God provides them, and he brings them through the story. Their relationship to God is what's important about them. You will understand less about God's mercy if you do not see him dealing with David, with David in a puddle on the floor writing Psalm 51. David understood that God was merciful to him. And so you see that aspect of God's character. You will understand God's 
judgment in the story of Noah that you facets about it that you would not have understood had you not seen it in the in the Noah story. So that's why we look at them. Okay, I'm gonna um, try to figure out a way to do this without. All right. So the next, okay, the next time you see him active redemptively, the next mediator is Noah. I'm gonna race now. And if you want to know what God thought about. Um, man during the time of Russell Crowe. All you have to do is read Genesis 6, where he says every single thought of mankind was only what? Only evil all the time. Three superlatives he is using there. Man is left to ourselves, only evil always. So we are, we are absolutely, we'll burn the house down, left to ourselves. And so God comes in and he shows us something about this redemptive plan. So every time one of these people comes on the scene, there's something more that's unveiled. There's something more, de- some more details, some more knowledge that we have about God. What had he said in Eden? Not a whole lot. It's something about a seed crush of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Did Eve immediately say, oh, that's probably going to be Jesus of Nazareth? No. So they learn this progressively. This is one of those, what do they know and how much and when did they know it? How much did they know and when did they know it? That's kind of like the... Benghazi thing that you hear all the time on the news. What? How much did they know, and when did they know it? That's that's what God is revealing to you here. So He says He's going to now work through. He's going to destroy them. He's going to destroy these sinners, but He is also going to save a family. So He's going to work through human sin and rebellion, rather than eliminating it from the face of the earth, rather than completely destroying it. So He uses Noah because judgment is never God's final word. Look at the end of the story. Judgment is never God's final word. Judgment is always there hand in hand with blessing. It is always on the way to blessing. It is always on the way to grace. The judgment has to take place because God's creation has to be cleansed from the defilement that human sin has caused it. And that is a work that is still in progress. And you see it over and over and over again. The final, the judgment that God put on Jesus on the cross will be born by him for his people. But at the end, when Christ comes again, and Jesus talks about himself in Matthew 25, he will come in glory and sit on his throne in Matthew 25, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. The judgment is always there, that element that is all the way through Scripture. And you see um, you see that vindication and that judgment coming. Jesus does not come on that day in Matthew 25 guessing who belongs to him, and separating people out at the last minute. This, this is the last age. This is the time of God's grace and mercy, and the time for judgment is yet to come, but, but you see it all along. Um, Abraham and the patriarchs, he raises up Abraham, and the, we've talked about this a lot, but Abraham's job, this was the missionary call of Abraham. This is after the Tower of Babel, which I didn't put up there, but after the flood, they spread out, and they're, and they're doing again what God had told them in Genesis, to spread out, multiply, fill the earth, and so they start spreading, and all of a sudden, they just stop, and they stop, and they gather, and they decide to make a name for themselves, and they will be gods, and you have the same story of Eden all over again. And God is saying, no, you will not be like God. Same lie that Satan had told them in the garden. And he says, no, you won't. And so he does the same thing that he did in the garden, and he drives them out, and he scatters them. And so now you have these nations with all these diverse languages, and they have no unity, and they're not united under one God, so they all have their own God. So what does God do when he has no one on the face of the earth worshiping him? Y'all, Ur of the Chaldees, from which Abraham came, was absolutely unbelievable, the practices of idolatry. 
and bestiality and paganism that, that you saw in these, in these nations back then. So he just calls one of them out. He just brings one of them to himself. It's election, yes. Are we going to talk about the doctrine of election? I'm going to say one thing about it. He elected Abraham and made a nation out of him for one reason. What was it? What did little Red's mother send her to grandmother's house to do? to be a blessing. Okay, that is always his plan. That was the plan in Eden. Go out and fill the earth with my image bearers, with people who look like me. That that blessing was supposed to be everywhere. Shalom was everywhere. And so he calls Abraham out and he says, you will be a great nation, a mighty nation. You will have descendants more than you can count. And it is for the purpose of being a blessing to the nations. So they were to go wherever he sent them to the promised land and they were to live there and be a Jesus said it all the way through his teaching. Thank you, Lisa. Jesus would stand. That was his major mode of confrontation with the, with the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders. He would say, you people don't have a clue who I am because you do not understand what? The Old Testament. You don't know me because you don't know your Old Testament. Y'all, how can we sit here and not want to know the story of the Old Testament if Jesus himself could stand there and say, it's all about me. And so we go on the law. We have the law. Jesus is the lawgiver. Jesus comes and fulfills the law. It's never, ever been repealed. He doesn't come in the Gospels and say he's abolishing it. He says, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to what? Fulfill it. So you see him doing that. See, we are no longer bound by a tablet of stone with Ten Commandments written on it, we are bound by the, and have the freedom of being bound by that 
those tablets embodied in a person, and he lives in us. Don't, don't ever read Paul's, Paul's letters and think that he is saying that we are not still under the law in that way. He just means we are not under the law in, our, in the condemnation that the law brought. Y'all, when God gave the law, we always want to say he gave it to us to show us our sin. That's our, that's our number one Sunday school answer that we give. That is not why he gave it. He gave it because they were a redeemed people and that he wanted them to live in the flourishing, well-being, wholeness, and shalom of that. And so he said, here is your blueprint. If you will do these things, you will live like redeemed people. He didn't call Moses over at the burning bush and say, here's the law. Go back to Egypt and tell them, if they keep it, I'll redeem them. It was the other way around. It is always to a redeemed people. And so we sit here and we want to go all the time to, to what do I do instead of who am I? That's our question. What do I do about this instead of who am I? We are the redeemed of God. We are in Christ Jesus. And so you're cheating on your taxes. You're sleeping with your boyfriend. Paul is always writing these letters to the, to the, the churches, and he's not saying you're doing bad things. Stop doing bad things and start doing good things. He's saying you're doing bad things. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense, Paul said, because that's not who you are anymore. He doesn't ever say, just stop doing bad and start doing good. He says, be who you are. And so the characters, remember those WWJD bracelets that everybody wore about, I don't what, 15 years ago? Has it been that long? I know they were wildly popular. But the reason they were so popular is because we're so lazy. Because we want to go, well, what would Jesus do in this particular situation? Because that's, that's what we want to go to is what would we do? Instead of, he has already done it all. And we, friends, are seated with him in the heavenlies at this moment. And so we, and he lives in us. And so two things about that. Since I heard y'all just study Philippians this summer. So in Colossians, how seriously do you take Paul when he says you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies? You're on his lap. How seriously do you take that? Because that is your sanctification positionally. That really is where you are. You are glorified. You are seated in the heavens with Christ on his lap. That is the spiritual reality of your life. It should be the governing principle of your life and of mine. It's just that experientially, that's, not what, that's just not consistent with my experiences today and the thoughts that I've already had and the things that I've already done and the words that have already come out of my mouth. It's just not consistent. And so we live in this tension between those two things. It's one of the things I love about David. He realized that about himself. We live in this tension between those two things. But what does Paul say in Philippians? No, I haven't attained it yet. But what? But I press on. I press on toward the what? The goal, the upward call. It is an upward call because that's where you already are. And experientially, in every situation in your life, that should be the governing principle. That's who I already am. I have a very, very difficult person in my life that I am, that it is my calling to care for. And I am constantly wanting that person to change. So that the situation will be a little bit easier each time I'm dealing with that person. And it is a constant battle, as you know it is anytime the Spirit comes. You think your flesh just lays down and says, oh, the Spirit's here, great. I can just relax now. No, it is a battle every minute of my life to press on toward the actual 
spiritual reality of where I am seated and who I am in Christ. And so that's, that's the law. That's living out the character of Christ because you already are that person. That's living, that's living out. That's why Jesus said, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to embody it. So they didn't um, do what they were supposed to do. And Christ, oh, you know what? This is about three talks. I told the girls this morning it was. So we're going to just, I'm going to jump to David real quick quickly because Joshua they go into the land they they have an incomplete conquest if we had a couple of hours we could do this better but they go in and, and do an incomplete conquest they just don't drive out the pagans they don't drive out the Canaanites they don't drive out the people God told them to drive out and consequently they live with them and they just move in with them and they say they have all these excuses and then and they say you know we have these new neighbors down the street and their kids are about our kids' age. And yes, they worship on that high place. And the God is, you know, pretty, I don't know, nondescript named Baal, but he makes the rain come. So, you know, would it really matter all that much if we went to church with them on Sunday? You know, would it really matter if our kids play with them? And so, and so on it went. And so they had these excuses for God. And so that's, that's what happened to them. And so this is, this is what we, we get to David and, and, Everyone in Judges does what is right in his own eyes because there was no king in the land. And so everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes, and David comes, and David is a new thing in Israel. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. Okay, here's what I want you to understand about David because you're going to come to Saul before you come to David, okay? And Saul did everything wrong. The difference in these two men is their hearts. And you'll hear it over and over and over again. David is a man after God's own heart. David was God's man because God made him his man, because God worked in David's heart. Because, And you will see the contrast between these two men. So it is the heart of the characters in this story that drive the story. You look at a problem every time it comes up, it is David's heart. When you see David on the roof looking at Bathsheba while she's, on, while she's bathing, it is David's heart that has already strayed from the Lord. David is greedy. David's got everything he could possibly want. He's surveying the land and he sees this one thing that he doesn't have. It's always, always his heart. There is always rebellion in the heart. And so the thing about David is he also had a repentant heart. He would always come back to the Lord when God convicted him of his sin. And so you had these divine conditions of David's heart. Um, Dan Dorian, his little girl, he's another professor at Covenant, his little girl, when she was three was he was reading her a Nebuchadnezzar story reading the book I've told y'all this before but it's so perfect for the heart illustration he's reading her this story it's big pictures colored pictures and they get to this big colored picture of Nebuchadnezzar and he's um, got on this fancy outfit and his shoes are turned up at the toe with a little bell on the end and it's purple robes and a crown and he's looking you know really awesome and she's sitting on on Dan's lap and she's got her passy in her mouth and she hasn't removed it the whole time he's doing the story and he gets to that picture of Nebuchadnezzar and he's done with the story, and it's Nebuchadnezzar at, at the peak of his wickedness. And, and Dan says, and Nebuchadnezzar was a very evil king. She takes her passy out, and she says, but I like his shoes. <laughs> so, that's the point. Saul, nothing. No redeeming qualities whatsoever. There will be no doubt in your mind that God didn't care what kind of shoes he had on. And you'll see that all through the story. Saul is a foil, a backdrop for this man after Dave, after God's own heart who knows who knows God. So look at um, look at chapter 16 when Samuel, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king? And then he gives Samuel these, Samuel's the prophet, the main man in Israel. He gives him these instructions to go and find 
go and find um, the new king that he has already anointed. Okay, so God has already made David's heart the heart that it is supposed to be. And so he goes to David's house. Jesse is the father that God has. God gives him all this information about who this man will be. So he goes, and the choices begin to parade in front of him. And y'all are very familiar with this story. Okay, y'all listen. Please, please do not come to these stories and say, oh, I know that. I know that story. Because Jesus right now in this room with us is saying, I don't really care how much you know about that story. I want you to know some more about me. I want you to know that there are some things in your life that I want for you that you don't necessarily want. I want you to know that there's some things I want out of your life. I want you to know that there's some paradigm shifts I want to do in your thinking. I don't care what you know about this story or how familiar you think you are with it. There is something about me that you don't know. And he is going to teach it to you through these stories. These are gospel stories, part of the larger gospel story. And so that's, that's why we study the historical narratives, to see the gospel in these stories. And so he's standing there, and all these strong, handsome men go marching by. This man, Samuel, who knows better, even this man who is the closest, to the heart of God cannot make the right choice because he, he can't see the heart like, like God does. And so he sees the height and not the heart. And so God says, how many times do I have to tell you, Samuel, I don't care anything about appearances. I mean, I don't care if you are pretty, that's fine, but it's not, it just doesn't make a difference to me. And so they get to the end and this, and Samuel says, you don't have any more sons because he was clear that, that none of these were it. And, and Jesse says, only little David, he's out tending the sheep, and, he's, and so he's pretty inconsequential. He's kind of like the Israelite Cinderella. He doesn't mean enough to even come in when and they leave him in, tending the sheep. And that is God's favorite kind of shock treatment. And Samuel gets it because Samuel is God's prophet. And Samuel says, nobody's eating a thing till you get that kid in here. And the minute he comes in after God has gone over and over and over, little no-name, comes in because they have not mentioned David's name yet in this entire story. His name has not been mentioned. And God says, his name is not important. I have chosen him. I have given him a heart for me. And you see the order. David is chosen not because he's great. He is great because God has chosen him. And you see it all through the story. And it's, the, it's, a, story, it's a gospel story. He is people. He walks in and the brothers and everybody else say, this can't be the Messiah. This can't be the anointed one. He's the youngest. He's out in the fields with the sheep. He's in the pen. This can't be. Only God's great, David's greater son, did they say this about, this can't be the Messiah. He eats with sinners. He talks about how to host a party. He's just, this can't be him. He hasn't come. He's not a warrior. He hasn't come to, to relieve us from Rome and, and the, and the tension and the, and the persecution and the oppression. And so you see the gospel start to unfold in David's life. And you see all this talk about the externals not meaning anything. And then this is such a precious irony. And I, the Old Testament narratives are full of irony. But you see this is so cool. The externals don't mean a thing God keeps saying over and over and over. And then when David comes in, it says, and he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. It's like, wait, what? Did you, did, why are we making a big, we're putting all these words on how pretty he is. It's like saying you're dating somebody and he's, godly and he's kind and he's compassionate and he loves your dog and oh by the way he's hot it's like god god did this because appearance is important to men and they loved these people love the loveliness of david and this is written to people in exile who love this man there's no king in israel's history more important still to this day than david and they love this man and they're in exile and they're reading this and they're reading how little no name came to the throne and how this inconsequential marginalized nobody 
was chosen to be David, to be God's king. And so they're, and so this is hopeful to them. This is the inversion of their situation while they're in exile that they really need to hear. Always, always, always read these stories for who that original audience was. And so David is anointed, and, and David is, is new in Israel, and David is anointed, and he's the game changer in Israel. And Israel will never be the same because he is a man on an irreversible mission just like his greater son will be when he comes in all his glory. And we love David because of the incongruities of his life. I've already told you he is an absolute picture of the gospel. He is a picture of God moving toward us in grace, in, in effusive love, and he is absolutely the, the one who shows us that God has the last word. When on his deathbed he says, I have not been faithful to you, but you have been completely faithful to me. And so that's the reality that governed David's life. Um, real quickly, I just want to tell you the ongoing story of David's life is, was, faith in, was faith in God and faith in the promises that he had made him. And that promise in Second Samuel 7 that he has made him to have this eternal king on his throne. And that's the story of our faithfulness, too. That's all faithfulness is. It's just that ongoing story of knowing that God is faithful to us. And so he gives us this personal conversation with us, this Bible, this scripture, And he wants us to know and love every single piece of it, every bit of it. Old Testament is Jesus' story, and he wants us to see that. So that's that's it. And here, before we go into this, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes kind of walking you through this Bible study method. But I want to spend about five minutes first telling you why it is so important. And this chart, by the way, I've I've done this thing like 10 times. It never looks the same. But um, they did... They did, the kingdom did divide, those of you that know your Old Testament, after the, the it's as good as it gets in Israel with David, and, and then Solomon comes to the throne, and he loves foreign women and can't keep his hands off of foreign women and their gods, and so this man who builds the temple and is, and is um, in, one, and in sync with God just completely goes downward spiral, and that's that where that genealogy spirals down, and they end up going into exile, and then God restores, because that's the, the theme of the gospel, because God restores the nation. So anyway, you see that. Um, here's what I want you to know. You're here because this is boot camp. You're here in Bible study. You come to Bible study not to get tidbits about child raising. You will get tidbits about child raising, but that's not why you come. It's not so that you can you know, have a better quiet time. There's nothing in the Bible about you having a quiet time. It's, it, there really is... Uh, this is where you come to know Jesus. Again, this is Jesus. He's not saying come and, and get some moral bits or learn how to be a better spouse. He is saying, I want you to know me better. I want this relationship to have more intimacy. I want you to understand who I am. And the other thing, the other reason you come is because you have got to be equipped. Again, you have not been called onto the stage to just sit in a chair. You have been called onto the stage to inhabit a role, to Take the script that God has given you, and he's given every single one of you one, and inhabit that role, whether it is whether you are rocking the career world or you are up to your neck in sippy cups right now. He has given you a role to play at this time, and it may change. Your calling may change, but it is your role. Are we being invaded? But it is your role. (laughs) It's not September 11th yet. Okay. And what your role is, is the agent of transformation that has never changed. The story has never changed. God is still calling people onto the stage. Acts ends very abruptly because it hasn't finished yet. He is still 
sending out his people, his church. And so you've been called onto the stage as that one of those agents of transformation in whatever role you are in right now. It's that famous, famous Abraham uh, Kuyper quote that there is not one square inch of this universe that God, that Christ does not point to and say, that is mine. You have your own square inch. I don't know what yours is. I know what mine are. I have several of them and I would be glad to give you one or two, but that's, we've all got them. And so God has said, this is a demanding privilege, but your role and your assignment is the same as it always was for each one of those mediators. You go out and you bring blessing. You bring shalom into that part of your world. What is shalom? It is reversing things. It is, it is pushing back the darkness in that particular place. It is truth-telling on your part that brings light to the situation. It is truth and love that brings compassion and grace to the situation. It is mercy. It is grace. It is anything that reverses what the, what the prince of this world, what Satan in his kingdom of darkness, his usurping kingdom, because he's just a parasite on the in the kingdom of God. He doesn't have his own kingdom. He just usurps Christ's kingdom. And he will continue to contest Christ's rule and reign until the day Christ comes again and puts him out of his misery for good. And so while we're here in this in-between age, while we're here in this already but not yet time period, we're those agents. Uh, somebody recently compared it to um, going to Baskin-Robbins and you have, they have those little pink spoons and you say, I want a taste of that. And it's so wonderful. You can't decide, but that looks really good too. And so you want a taste of that. And before you know it, you've got, you know, six little pink spoons in your hand. And because you have these little tastes of things. And he said, that's what we are. We are little pink spoons. And everywhere we go, we are to bring a foretaste of what that shalom looks like, what that new creation at the end of the story looks like, what God's original intention for that thing was. I was talking to Kay about this earlier. I teach, I have a company and that teaches high school dance teams. We work with middle school and high school girls um, in, in an industry that has been enormously impacted by human sin. I can't even begin to tell you um, how much it has. What is God's original intention for it? And there is one. There is an original intention of God for every single thing in your life because there is nothing in creation that is that, that God did not have an intention for. It's just that man in his sin takes it and, and reverses it. God, it's not that God didn't want them to make tools in Genesis. They made tools and turned them into weapons of destruction and killing. It's not that God didn't want the Egyptians to make pyramids and have the most beautiful pyramids in the world and the wonder of the world that we would all marvel at thousands of years later. It's that they used human slave labor and oppression to do it. So we taint it all with sin. But it was, it's all God's original structure is always good. And so in my world of dance, I, that's my job as an agent of transformation is to push back the darkness and to bring light into that because God had original intention for it. What was it? Body movement, yeah, joy, rhythm and music and joy. And you see these people throughout Scripture. And one of the psalmists says, you have turned my mourning into, into dancing, equating it with the opposite of mourning. It's shalom. It's, it's a part of God's good creation. But we have taken it and, and with sexually suggestive and offensive costuming, lyrics to music, and everything else, we have challenged every bit of that, and we have created uh, this monster. Y'all, the, the girls with whom we work have grown up in, a, in, a, in an era where there are no universal rules about sexuality at all. 
And I was telling Kay that recently there was a, I have never watched Dance Moms. It's a reality show, but somebody told me I really needed to. And so I did watch a YouTube version. And there were these, I, I want to say like 12-year-olds, 11, 12-year-olds, 6th graders probably, and they were completely doing a burlesque style routine, completely covered in flesh tone costumes with sequins just in suggestive places. Okay, these are girls that would have never, well, they may have come up with it on their own, I don't know, but, but most likely they came up with it because the producer of this show, now you, and the producer of this show, when called on the carpet, and which I was really surprised about that, said, everyone watching this knows it's harmless. Those kids are covered. They, I'll tell you what a Christian thinks a Christian should be thinking when she's watching that. She knows what that is. That is the battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And those children are being used as weapons in that battle by this, by the prince and ruler of this world, by the devil himself. And so there are agents of this kind of stuff. There are agents of this kind of destruction. And it's like Kay said, where are the feminists when you need them? Where are those who would come along and say, you are abusing the human dignity of that child's body by doing this is my world. That's one of my callings. That's one of the ones I would give you <laughs> if God would let me out of it. But we need to be constantly asking ourselves, what, that, what, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to say, Lord? What, what have you given me? What resource, what equipping do I have? And it is here. It is here in his word. You are not going to get it anywhere else because we're not, we can't philosophically and rationally think that through. We have to bring biblical principles to bear on every single part of our lives and where he has called us to go because the false narrative is out there and Satan always spins it to make it look normal, to make it look like as Kay said, what did you say? I'm an old fuddy that you thought you were an old fuddy duddy or something for even asking the yeah, coming off the Mayflower for even asking the question of really, is this good? This is a case study in journalistic slouching towards Gomorrah that just to throw at you just food for thought. Because sometimes I think we can really get in our little huddles and forget this is going on. The British newspaper, The Guardian, this was last year, came out with this headline in one of their articles in one of their, in one of their papers. It's a pretty mainstream newspaper in Britain. This was the headline. There is little agreement about pedophilia. Now think about that for a minute. You mean there's more than one opinion on this? Okay, that is the number one strategy of the enemy to suggest that evil is really just controversial and that it is something that reasonable people can disagree on. Okay, y'all, when the discussion starts at that level, we've already lost. The bad guys have already won. We have to know what God says. We have to know God's norms. We have to be in God's word. There is no other where, place anywhere you're going to learn it. There is no other way to know it. And here's one more, couple more thoughts. There is a verse in Proverbs 11.10 that says, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Again, it's that shalom. You are the righteous and you are prospering. You are filthy, rich, you are sitting here with all these resources and with this scripture on your lap and you are prospering because you are in God's word and you know the truth and you know what to say and you know what to do with it and what you can do is rejoice the city. And that city may just be three children in your home for right now. I don't know. that. that I don't know who that city is in your life, but your job is to rejoice them and that does not come naturally to us. It has to be nurtured in us. It can't be if we are not regularly, regularly in his words. Can you sniff it out? The, the big lies, 
like the ones I've just told you about, and the subtle lies. And you know what they are. And bring biblical principles to bear on those. I'm going to close with just a couple of thoughts. I, wanna, I wanted to have time to read you this one, this one little thing that I just heard. Did any of y'all go to the Gospel Coalition in Florida? No? Okay. Um, those of you that, haven't, that I haven't gotten to be with before... <laughs> The rest of the, these people are used to there being 300 sheets of paper up here. I'm so sorry. So to, just a couple of things. There are things that you have underlined in your Bible that have been underlined for years, and you've never done one thing about them, or you have really had no intention. I know that because I know it's true of me. And so Jesus is calling us, again, to himself to learn what he has to say to us in order to be transformed into his likeness, in order to love him better, to have more intimacy with him in, his, in our relationship with him. And he is saying to us, please make this a priority in your life. Please make this important in your life. Please make studying the Bible important in your life. Please make Jesus important in your life is what he's saying to me because he always uses him and his word interchangeably he says you are my disciple if you what homeschool no you are my disciple if you use all the christianese lingo no you are my disciple if you don't go to r-rated movies no you are my disciple if you abide in my word in him he always uses those things interchangeably he is making disciples he is transforming us into his likeness he loves you that much and he is asking you to please make this as important to you as it was when he brought it the first time y'all the disciples on the Emmaus road that tim mentioned i want to i want to read this to you real quick that tim mentioned one of the things they said after he had done a bible study with them that afternoon which he did the 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 risen Lord on the road to Emmaus could have gone anywhere. And he does a Bible study with these two crazy men who had to, had to hear it from the Lord's mouth, the irony of, we thought he was going to be the one to rescue Israel, but he was crucified. And he said, if you knew the story, you wouldn't have just said that because the story is about me. What they should have said was, we thought he was going to be the one to rescue Israel, therefore he was crucified. Because the story is all over it. It's all, the gospel was always there. But they leave and they, what did they say when they finally realized, when they get it, when the scales fell up? They said, didn't our hearts, what, burn? Okay, I'm asking you, when is the last time your hearts burned? Burned for him. Burned to know him better in this story. Burned so that you can put everything else away and the appointments can be scheduled around your Wednesday morning Bible study. And you can make time early morning or late night when there's no one else around in the room. Whatever it is it takes to know him better, to love him more. And and it should take your breath away that he has condescended to give it to us. I want to read you this. This is my favorite book. It is That is Red Cough Syrup that's from falling asleep when I'm sick and <laughs> dropping the book and spilling it. I'm sorry. It looks that way. But it's it, for those of you who have never read it, you need to read it. But this is a, this is a, a point at which Betsy and Corey, uh, Betsy is still alive in, in Ravensbrook. They are in a concentration camp. They have managed um, Corey Ten Boom. 
If you don't know her story, please read it. But that, it's just a beautiful, beautiful story of discipleship. But she and her sister are in, the, and Betsy is dying, and they are in this barracks. And next to them is this barrack that is the punishment, the punishment barracks. And they just hear it's cruelty, and all they can hear in this regular rhythm all day long is screaming and people being tortured next to them. And they have managed to keep this Bible with them the whole time. They have smuggled this Bible, and they've had it with them the whole time they've been there. And they would hide it under their clothes. They would, you know, anywhere they could hide it. But she says... It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there's just too much misery, too much pointless suffering. And every day, something else failed to make sense in the story. Something else grew too heavy. Will you carry this too, Lord? Will you carry this, Lord Jesus? But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear, and that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were never shown. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, we would gather around it and holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I would look about as Betsy read, and I would watch the light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. This was not a wish. This was a fact. We knew this. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor and hated and hungry and naked as we were, we were more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Life took place here on two separate levels that were mutually impossible. One was the external life, and one was the life we live with God, seated in the heavenly places. It grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. Sometimes I would slip the Bible from its little sack with hands that shook. So mysterious had it become to me. It was new. It was just being written. I marveled sometimes that the ink was even dry. I had believed it always. But reading it now had nothing to do with belief. It was simply a description of the way things were, of hell, of heaven, of God, of how men acts, and of how God acts. I had read it a thousand times, these stories. And now, so much was happening for us. I'm going to have to quit. I'd read on and on and on. Y'all, listen, sometimes your hearts will burn, and sometimes they will not. Sometimes it will be fresh and new to you, and sometimes it will not. But we will never love him without it. We will never follow him faithfully without it. We will never want him without it. He wants you to want him. There is only one way to do that, by studying the Bible. That will make you want him more. That will make you love him more. I would love to close in prayer, but I want to say one word about your study real quickly. It is an Old Testament study. If y'all will open it for just a second. It is an Old Testament study about Old Testament narratives, but it is... um, Let's go to... Let me just open it to the page one where the actual lessons begin. We went through the, the first lesson this morning in leaders' meeting, and, um, and we talked, and we, what, one of the things we talked about that I want to really, really reiterate here, these questions are not meant for every one of them, this is probably a dangerous thing to say, for every one of them to be answered. They are meant to get you to start thinking on your own, to start to really dig into Scripture for yourself and start observing and discovering things on your own. And so when you read... 
Question number one, read the entire passage and observe the details and the settings and the, and the situation. If you go on and read it, you'll see that it says, look at contrasting words and repeating words and things like that. But you don't have to read the whole question. All you need to read is the first ten words. Read the passage. Read the Bible. And just see what it says. Just observe and jot down things and, and combine it with question number two. What is... What does this particular thing mean? Why is this happening? In this very first passage you're going to read, there's going to be some things in that you're going to go, what in the world is going on here? Why is this happening? Why is God allowing that particular thing? What is going on with this person? And so you, you start asking questions of the text. You start asking questions of what's, what's going on in the situation, in the story. These are people who got up every day and got dressed just like you did. And, and they lived out this gospel story. And you're going to see the gospel screaming at you in this first story. And so then you go on and look at context. And, and y'all, let me just tell you about this. All this is is meant to get you to be a deeper student and a more careful reader of the Word of God. And it takes practice. It really does, because we're just not used to studying like that. We're used to just answering question number three, and what does verse 7 say about Jeremiah's coat or whatever? I don't know. You know. But So we're, just, we're used to a simpler question. We just are. I think y'all are, y'all are not, because y'all have done Mary Beth McGreevy and George Robertson's study, but y'all, you know what I'm saying. We're used to just answering questions. This is asking you to be the question asker. This is asking you to say, what's going on here, Lord? What are you trying to teach me, Lord? What is it that I'm supposed to learn about you and your character from this? Just relax. There's a big note about that, okay? This takes time. It'll take you several weeks of doing this, devoting some time to Bible study. And really, if you, you know, if you really, really do do that in the character questions, um, again, you don't have to answer every question. Just look through these questions and, and, and they're leading questions to, to make you understand, like, what are these characters going through? What's going on in their lives? And on page 7, lead, those little bullet points there are leading questions to tell you, guide you, and you're thinking about God. Because instead of just saying, what did you learn about God in this passage? Well, where, what did you learn about him? Where do you see him acting in mercy? Where do you see him uh, acting in rescue? Because here's the thing. He doesn't want you to just learn little bits about him. He wants you to know his character as he acts in history. That's what the stories are, are so beautifully so beautifully adept at. It's like with your children. You could give them three dogmatic statements from the book of Romans. That, that they are not going to get nearly as well as if you tell them a story. And like we said this morning in Leaders, I mean, you can tell a non-believer, you can give them a, a scripture verse that he may just think is the stupidest thing he's ever heard in his life. But when you see God acting in mercy, when you see God acting in compassion, and you can, and you can pull those principles out of there for yourself, listen, there are questions I used to call them the third day questions, day three questions, and they start on nine, page nine in this lesson. And they're just questions that you can answer by, you know, looking up scripture and seeing yourself. If you need to start with those, start with those. If you need a jump start, start with those, because those are just your regular run-of-the-mill questions. They're not, you know, big observe, observer questions. But give yourself some time to, um, to really just read the scripture. You know, we have had a tendency in... Um, Shirley, I know you know what I'm talking about when I say this, but we've had a tendency in Bible studies, whether it's church, parachurch, whatever it is, to say to people um, when they say on the night before their leader calls them or whatever, well, I didn't do my lesson, and we say, oh, just come anyway, or I didn't read the passage, just come anyway. Well, what is that saying? That's saying it's all about you. That's, that's saying you're more important than that passage. And, you know, we've always said that, and we thought that was kind of a good thing to say, but really it's, it's kind of not 
I mean, it really is important that you read this passage. Now, if you didn't have time to do your lesson next week and you read the passage, just read the Bible. That's all these lessons are designed to get you to do is to get into the Word of God and read it. It is that important to Jesus. It is that important to Him that you delve into, into His Word and know Him better. Okay? All right. Okay. You have a, an announcement. Okay, I'm going to run. Thank you all so much. I appreciate you all. Fine.